Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to repeat what Billy just said. It is such a pleasure. It is such a gift to get to be one of your pastors here at Cornerstone, and I'm excited to get to open the word with you this morning. If you're here for the first time, we're so glad to have you here with us. We're in the second week of a series that we started last week called Being Human. I said at the beginning last week that the question, what does it mean to be human, is the most important question facing the church today. And as I thought about that a little bit over the last week, perhaps a better way to have said that would have been to say that the question, what does it mean to be human, is the most pressing question facing the church today. Because it is the thing that is most being contested in the world around us. The most important question, I love how A.W. Tozer, he wrote this in his book, um, Gosh, I'm blanking on the title, but some of you can apply it for me. He said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is what comes to our minds when we think about God. And I absolutely agree with him on that. But I would follow up and say this, the second most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about what it means to be human. Think about it this way. Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment of the law, identified two things. You remember what they were? It's written on the lobby wall if you, walked in, if you saw it as you walked in this morning. To what? Love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about this with me. The two most important things that Jesus says that we are to do as humans is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But think about this for a second. To love God has to include knowing God. Not as we think he is or how we want him to be, but as he has revealed himself in his word. Because you can't love someone you don't know. Then you just love an idea. So to love God means you must know God. And I would say in the same way, to love our neighbor as ourself means that we must know who our neighbors are and who we are. We need a robust biblical understanding of humanity so that we might not just make much of ourselves, but so that we might love God and love those that he's made in his image. That idea that God made us in his image, is the main thing that we talked about last week. We talked about how so many different voices in our culture and even in ourselves are, are, are speaking about certain aspects of our humanity and placing them at the center. I kept using the phrase, the sun at the center of the solar system of what it means to be human last week. Whether that be your race, your gender, your, your sexual orientation, your abilities or disabilities, your accomplishments, the good things you've done, the bad things you've done, all these things are put forward as the center of what it means to be human. And as important as those things are, we saw last week that the Bible doesn't locate the center of our humanity in any of those other things, but with this idea that we are made in the image of God. And at the end of last week, I talked about how even though sin has so affected us, it does not change the fact that we are still made in God's image. That's where I want to continue the conversation this morning. What are the effects of sin? If we are still made in God's image, what problem has sin caused? Well, last week, 
we talked about a bunch of different ways that the church has viewed this idea of the image of God throughout history. And I said that I think the best way to understand it is this, that the image of God in which we were made refers to God's intention, that should be an apostrophe, yes, God's intention to manifest his presence through humans, to dwell in us and to make himself known through us. That the image of God is not primarily about something that we do, but what God has intended to do through us. There's two ways, then, that I want to look at this idea of the image of God in light of the problem of sin. I want to talk about how sin affects us as those made in God's image, both in who we are and in what we do. So if you're writing down notes this morning, which I would encourage you to do, it's a great practice to do, to not just go, okay, how much of this can I hold in my head from what I've heard? to interact with the content in different ways and be able to think through it throughout the week. And I would say if you weren't here last week, I don't want to recount any more of what we talked about last week because we got a lot to look at this week. But I would highly encourage you to go back and look at last week's message on the website because it's, uh, it's the foundation for everywhere we're going from here. We're going to start today with this question of how does sin affect who we are? We've got to think about this in two ways. Last week we looked real briefly Toward the end at Genesis 9, after the flood, as God is talking to Noah, and he says this. He says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Even after humans rebelled against God and came under the curse of sin and death, we see God make this emphatic statement here in Genesis 9 that we are still, humans are still made in God's image. So on the one hand, we have to affirm that all humans, while sinners, are still image, made in God's image and therefore worthy of our honor and care and protection. That was what I talked about a lot at the end last week. Regardless of age or race or abilities or any of that, all humans, whether you're inside the womb or outside the womb, are made in God's image and are worthy of our care and protection. But on the other hand, though, the Bible also talks about the reality that sin has caused massive damage to us. Look at the way Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air in reference to Satan, that serpent who initially deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He speaks in past tense because Paul is writing to a group of people who have placed their faith in Jesus. These things are now past tense for them. But if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, this is still where you are. Look again at verse 1. Dead in sin in which you walked. Dead and walking. How is that possible? Well, we know that dead people only walk in those weird zombie shows that some of you guys really like to watch. So we know that Paul must be talking about something other than physical death. 
something different. And, and as a matter of fact, I would say it's associated with both, both physical death and what Paul's talking about here are consequences of sin, but it's different. This is what theologians often refer to as spiritual death. Death in regard to our relationship with God. It's like when a relationship between a parent and a child breaks down to such an extent that one of them looks at the other and says, you're dead to me. There has been a complete breakdown, a death in the relationship. Look how Paul then goes on to explain it later in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and, get this, without God in the world. There has been a death in the relationship. And as dead ones, this means that we, on our own, are powerless to repair that relationship. We cannot bring this relationship back to life. So I would say the two things that we must say about humans in light of sin is this. All humans are made in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity and care. But all humans are simultaneously separated from God, dead in sin, and deserving God's wrath and punishment. Both are true of all humans apart from Christ. And we get into weird places when we just emphasize one or the other. We hold both of them together. We do not disparage those made in God's image. James 3, 9 says, Brothers, with the same mouth we bless our God and Father and then curse people who are made in his image. This should not be so. There is dignity and care and worth in every human life and there is rebellion and deception and wrath hanging over every human life because of sin. That's the paradox of who we are. But if the image of God refers to God's intention to manifest his presence through us, to dwell with us and to make himself known through us, but sin has now separated us from God, then I would say that the effect of sin is that, again, apart from Jesus Christ, fallen humans are still God's images, but without God's presence. You see that? We were created in God's image with the intention that his presence would dwell within us and make him, he would make himself known through us. Now that sin has come in, we are still made in God's image, but we are no longer fit for God's presence. Does that make sense? Let me give you an illustration that might help you with this. Um, many of you guys know Robin Albanese. She's a Todd's assistant. She's also one of our main counselors here at the church. Uh, several years ago, she and her husband, Mike, decided that they wanted to do an addition on their house so that Robin's mom could come live with them. This was going to be a big project. We were talking about this in sermon prep, and we couldn't find a better illustration. Hopefully this helps you. But they had this big project. They had to move, pull up trees. They had to rearrange things with their house. They had to add this whole section onto their house, and it was going to be a big job. But they wanted to do it to honor her mom and to make a place where, where she would be at home with them. They thought through every detail of this house, how wide the doorways were, how high the countertops would be, where the outlets would go. Everything was custom made with her mom in mind. 
And I would say in many ways, that's, that, that's a helpful way for me to think about what it means that we're made in God's image. Every detail of who you are, every aspect of your humanity was designed by God, custom built by him so that he might dwell in you and with you. But here's the problem. Right about the time that Robin and Mike were finishing up this edition, they got a call from her mom saying, yeah, I changed my mind. I'm not going to move in. Now, I, can, I have permission to share this story. She says, a couple years ago, everything is good now between Robin and her mom. But she says, we're still sitting here with this addition on our house, custom built with one person in mind, but that person's missing. All that's missing is the presence of the person that this was made for. And I think in the same way, that's a good way for us to think about who we are as humans now that sin has affected us. Every aspect of your humanity, your desires, your abilities, your ability to think, it still echoes with God's intention to, for you to be one that he would make his presence known through. All that's missing is him, his presence. There is this separation that has happened. We are still made in God's image, but we are cut off from God's presence. In this way, I would say that the image of God in us as humans is not destroyed by sin, but it's left unfulfilled. God's intention for us as those made in his image is left unfulfilled. Does that analogy help? Okay, let's keep moving then. This is also, though sin makes it where, where we can't, we're not fit for God's presence anymore. What we see throughout the rest of scripture is that God still desires to share his presence with us. This is why we read in Exodus 25 that God commanded the people of Israel to build him a tabernacle, a tent, a sanctuary, he says, so that he might live in their midst. God still wants to dwell with those that he made in his image. But things are going to have to be different now. If you know your Old Testament, which no pressure if you don't, let's learn it. It's great. If you know your Old Testament, you know that the way that God dwelt with the people of Israel through the tabernacle had to look different. Because now we are sinful, we can only come so close, be so close to God's presence without it being very dangerous for us. The guys in the Bible Project, uh, they, they illustrate this sometimes. I remember there was this one where they, they show the picture of the sun, and then there's this little animation of these people on a rocket ship that said, sun tours, and they're all partying and happy because they're going to go visit the sun. And as they get close to the sun, suddenly, poof! Getting too close to the sun destroys you. And in that way, we see this picture. Getting too close to God's presence in our sinful condition is deadly to us. Yet, God still desires to share his presence, but it must be in a limited, separated thing because we are now images unfit for his presence. But that's why the tabernacle isn't the end of the story. If you keep reading your Bible, eventually you come to John 1, where we read about this one who's called the Word, and it says that this word was in the beginning with God and that he was God. That everything was made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. 
And then it says in verse 14 that this word who is God became flesh and tabernacled with us. That God himself took on human form, became a human in Jesus to dwell with us. That's the main thing we're going to look at next week. Next week's all about Jesus. And that's kind of it's the roughest thing for me. There's been several times that I've been preparing for this series where it's like if we were off at some retreat somewhere where like we could meet in the morning and the evening, it'd be great to string this thing together in this way. Well, my biggest concern is to go, okay, we got a week between these conversations. We got to get to Jesus. But I think sometimes our understanding of Jesus stays small and rather immature because our understanding of ourselves is really small and immature. And we don't see the bigness of what it is that Jesus came to rescue us. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. That in Jesus, we see what this image of God was intended to be. And he says that through Jesus, all things now can be reconciled to God through his death on the cross. That what Jesus did on the cross satisfies God's wrath. And just as God didn't leave Jesus in the grave, as we sang in those songs, but he rose him back to life, now we can experience new life. This deadness of sin can be taken away, we can be given new life, and be put in a position where now God's spirit can dwell within us, that, that God's presence can dwell within those he made in his image as he intended from the beginning. That's where we're going next week. I want to give you a little taste in case some of you guys are going, where is he trying to go with all of this? But I want you to get this. The Holy Spirit, we sang about this, the Holy Spirit who lives within those who follow Jesus is here to do much more than to help you stop sinning. He has been given to us, God's presence, God's own spirit, God himself dwelling within us to fulfill what he intended us to be in the beginning. Do you see that? But again, to sum up this first thing we're talking about, when we ask the question, how sin affects who we are, we are still God's images apart from Christ, but cut off from God's presence. The second thing we want to look at when we talk about humanity is how sin affects what we do. There's so many ways we could talk about this. We could do sermon after sermon and they wouldn't really be all that enjoyable. Like, it's important to talk about the bad news so you understand how good the good news is. But maybe let me just get us started by looking back at where this problem of sin first started, at least for us as humans. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read this for us. I'll put it up on the screen for you as well. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. This one that we find out in chapter 2 was referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it, which she adds into it, or you will die. 
The serpent comes along and responds, and he says this, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is where it all begins to unravel. Let's talk about this for a couple of minutes. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology, which I think several of you guys have copies of, it's kind of one of the main ones out there in evangelicalism right now. When he's talking about Genesis chapter 3, he looks at it and he talks about how sin What sin does to us in that it offers us different answers to three important questions. The first, as we look at this, sin offers us a different answer to the question, what is true? What is true? God had said back in Genesis 2, 17, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden, including the tree of life. But from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's what's true. The serpent comes along and says, that's not true. You will not surely die. Not only that, if you eat from this, you will be like God. So in questioning the grounding of what's true, what do we see Eve doing? Well, she goes, huh, maybe... Maybe God wasn't telling us the whole story. Maybe I should conduct an experiment and see if what God said was true or not. Sin changes our perception of what's true. The second question that sin gives us a different answer to is the question, what is right? What is right? God had told Adam and Eve that it was right for them to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But again, the serpent says, actually, no, it would be right and good for you to eat. Because if you eat from it, you will be like God. And the craziest part of it is Eve doesn't go with what God says or what the serpent says. She doesn't go with what God thinks or what the serpent thinks. What does she go with? What she thinks. Look at verse 6. All these different voices are out there, these two different opinions And the woman looks at the tree and she says, man, this tree, it's good for food. It's a delight to my eyes. Not only that, if I eat from this, I will be wise. Eve trusted her own evaluation about what was right and what would be good for her rather than what God said was right and good. So sin causes us to question what is right. It causes us to question what's true. And the last one is this. It gives us a different answer to the question that we're talking about this series. Who am I? Who am I? As creatures made by God, Adam and Eve were wholly dependent upon him. Their whole being was defined by this relatedness to God that he made them. They were created to follow him as their creator and king because they were made in his image that he might dwell with them and make himself known through them. 
But instead of being content with being God's images, Adam and Eve desired to be like God, to put themselves in the place of God. And from this moment, all of us have been on a relentless quest to answer those three questions for ourselves. Who am I? What is true? What is right or good for me? With tragic consequences. Anthony Hokema, who wrote a great book on the image of God, called Created in the Image of God, he said this. Oh, come on. He said, the most important thing we can say about man is that he is inescapably related to God. What's the most important thing we can say about what it means to be human? There's no way to get around the fact that we are tied to God, whether we like it or not. Our whole being is wrapped up in him. The way that Paul says it in Acts 17, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, that God gives all men life and breath and everything else. The most important thing we can say about who we are is that we are inescapably related to God. And that, listen, that is the very thing that our sin denies. I'm not who God says that I am. I define myself. I decide what's right for me, right? This is what we, what we see, what we hear, what we believe so often. We don't... De- we, we want to decide what's true for me, what's tr- and I want to encourage you to find what's true for you, and as long as your truth doesn't get in the way of my truth, my freedom to do what I want doesn't get in the way of your freedom to do what I, you want, then we're good. As long as your truth doesn't conflict with my truth, there's no problem. But the problem is this. All of that thinking conflicts with God's truth. We do not define our own existence. The image of God defines our existence. It's like the song we sang right before I came up here. I am who you say that I am. Do you understand? As we, even as we sing that, there's a part within all of us, maybe you felt it, we push back against that very thought. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'll say that, God, you are who I say you are, but then I'm, I'm going to study real hard, scripture really hard to make sure that it says what I want it to say. So that way then, okay, good. What you say about me and what I think of me fits. We want to listen to our hearts. We want to listen to anyone else who will tell us that we are anything other than inescapably related to God. One of the clearest places that we see this is in Romans chapter one. Listen to the way that Paul talks about what sin, what we do in sin and then what sin does to us in this passage. He says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What Paul says here in Romans 1, the essence of our sin, the problem at the root of it, is this willful suppression of truth. We push it down. There's nothing to see here. There's no man behind the curtain. And then he goes on and he says this, verse 20. He says, for the invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, mainly his eternal power, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's made himself 
obvious to us. He is a God who reveals himself to us through the things that have been made so that people, all of us, are left without excuse for our suppression of the truth. For although they knew God, he says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. God's made himself obvious. He has revealed himself to us. And every single one of us sees that and says, thanks, but no thanks. That not only is is, is sin rooted in our suppression of the truth, what Paul says here is that all sin is fundamentally oriented toward God. That when we want to think about what is right, the main question that we want want to turn it toward is, does it hurt anyone? Does it get in the way of what somebody else wants to do? And what Paul says is, that's not how we ground what's right. It's not just about the effect that it has on others. It's the fact that all of our sin stems from the failure and refusal to acknowledge God as God and honor him and give thanks to him. But look what this does to us. So there is a willful suppression of the truth. There is a willful rejection of what's clear about God and the, and the, 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 the right response of giving thanks to him and honoring him as God. But look what it does to us. Look at the end of verse 21. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That in this willful suppression of the truth, our very ability to perceive and understand the truth gets thrown off kilter. That in our unwillingness to acknowledge God as God and give thanks to him, our ability to properly recognize what is obvious about God in the world gets thrown off kilter. Sin distorts us. It unravels our thinking. It disconnects us from reality. And if any of you have ever dealt with like sensory depth perception balance issues, you know how disorienting it can be. You don't know which way's up anymore. At least your body doesn't. You ever been at the beach and got tossed by the waves and for a second you couldn't figure out which way was up? That's a scary place to be, isn't it? Sin causes us to lose our grip on what is true, what is right, and who we are. And everything becomes muddy and unclear. And the natural response within us is to get anxious, to start clamoring for anything to hold on to, to give us a grasp of what's really going on in our world. Out of the anxiety of losing our grip on what is true, what is right, and who we are, we start to work even harder to make sense out of a senseless, messed up mind on our own, to make an identity for ourselves, to say who we are, but the harder we try, the further we get off track. It's like the guy playing golf who's got a really bad slice. And rather than actually working to correct it, he goes, you know, I'm just going to swing harder next time. You ever played with somebody like that? I've played like that many a time. I am very acquainted with the feeling of having my ball be two fairways over from the hole that I'm actually supposed to be playing. And the little GPS thing in the golf cart saying, I don't even know where you are anymore. This is what sin does to us. 
He can't even see where we were supposed to go in the first place, who we were supposed to be in the first place. Look how Paul continues it. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All that stuff about idols we talked about last week. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust, the desire, don't think about that just in a sexual way, but in the disordered desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Think about this for a second. The images of God turned to idols. Those who were made to reflect and embody God's presence for him to manifest himself through us are now so far off. We give the worship and allegiance and devotion and pour all of our energy that was meant to be used by God to make himself known into worshiping objects of our own thoughts, objects of our own affections, to give our glory, our affection, our worship to anything and anyone but God. And look back at verse 22. We think we're wise when we do it. In the rest of the chapter, Paul continues to chart this downward spiral of human sin. How it unravels us and disconnects us from reality. That it disorients us so that we don't even know where we're going or what we were supposed to be anymore. We don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter this morning but maybe some of you don't need me to. You don't need me to walk you through the rest of the way of this downward spiral of sin because you know that that's where you are right now. You're living this story right now. Maybe you walked in here this morning, you can't remember the last time you were in a church, let alone if you ever were. But you're here this morning and you're listening to what I'm saying, you go, man, I have lived this way my whole life, trying to figure out who I am, trying to define on my own who I am. I don't know which way's up anymore. If that's where you are this morning, let me tell you who you are. Not who I think you are. Let me tell you what God's word says you are. You are one, to put this back up, who is inescapably related to God. God gives you your life, your breath, and everything else. You are one who was made in his image according to his intention to dwell with you and make himself known through you. Every detail of who you are was at its root crafted by the very hand of God so that he might dwell in you. But you were born into the same sinful, messed up human race as the rest of us. You've been separated from God your whole life. But Jesus has made a way to bring you back. He has made a way to bring you and make you one who is fit for God's presence again. 
He died on that cross, not this particular one, but he died on the cross so that he might take all of your sin, your shame, the stuff right now where you're going, man, if, if anyone knew these things about me, he knows. And his blood is enough to satisfy the wrath of God that you deserve. Jesus rose again so that you might have new life, that, that literally we'll see next week, that God might breathe new life into you just as he breathed life into Adam in the beginning. We're gonna talk about that more next week, but I would say this to you. If right now you're listening to me and you just have this deep conviction in your soul that what I'm saying is true, but you've never trusted in Jesus before, trust in him today. If you want someone to pray with you, we'd love to have you have someone come pray with you. We have a prayer room up here. You can do it. You can always turn to someone next to you that you know as a follower of Jesus. Ask them to pray for you and pray with you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the band to come back up here. We're going to sing one more song together, but don't check out. I know sometimes we put the water bottles down, we put the notes and things like that. On. Listen to what I'm saying right now. This is week two of this. Last week, I threw out an email address, questions at cornerstoneteaming.com, where you could send questions that come up in your mind off of this. And I got some great ones this week. One of the main ones was, why are we doing this? Why do we need to focus so much on who we are? And so here's what I'd love to ask you right now. Do you see why this matters? Are you starting to see the, why understanding what it means to be human is so important? To be made in the image of God means that you were made for so much more than the American dream or the nice retirement or to get a big following on social media. You were made, all of you, for so much more than the endless pursuit of pleasure to somehow drown out how mundane and boring life seems. You were made for so much more than to live for the weekend to amass toys. You were made in the image of God to share in his presence for God himself to make himself known through you. Do you see how amazing that is? Do you also see then how foolish it is when we take all of this and go, yeah, God, cool, I, I, I get it that that's who you say that I am. But actually, I think I'm this. I'm going to define myself and center my humanity in something else. But that's the way that sin distorts all of us in our thinking, which is why this is where repentance starts. We talk about that word repentance a lot in the church, to turn from sin to righteousness. And typically when we think about it, or we think about it in terms of what we do, and I would say this to you, repentance doesn't just start with what we do, it starts with who we are. Not just changing your habits, but changing your identity. Changing, I, even more, I would say, who gets to define your identity? Who gets to say who you are? At the beginning, I said the two most important questions are who is God and who are we? This is where repentance starts. Would you pray with me? God, would you remind us all afresh whether we know you through Jesus Christ or we don't? that God, you are who you say that you are. You are not who I think you are, who I want you to be. You are who you say you are as you have revealed yourself in scripture. 
Would you open our minds to understand that and also to understand the corresponding truth that if you are are who you say you are, then we are who you say we are. Not who we want to be, not who we think we are, but who you revealed us to be in your word. Would you give us the humility, the submission to bow before you and let you be God. Let us be those made in your image. And let Jesus be the one, as we'll see next week, who brings that all back together. We pray this in the name of Jesus.